Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 19, Order of the Flaming Sword, 1891 to 1892. Hello, welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. Remember me? So, I want to start this week by apologizing for the delay between episodes. Late July and all of August just swallowed me whole. I want to say a special thank you to those of you who checked in on Facebook or via email to, well, to make sure that A, I hadn't given up on the podcast, and or B, that I wasn't dead. Happily, neither of those are the case. Here's what actually happened. Late July at the day job is annual review time, and it literally takes weeks to prep all of the documents. The review process is itself a full week long, then we go right into two weeks of prep for our national summer sales meeting. Normally we have more time than that, so it was pretty harried this year. Then we were away for another full week for the actual sales meeting, and when I returned to the office it was right into a week of interviews for some new hires. It's September 1st as I record this, and this is literally the first day I've had to surface and breathe since, well, since late July, really. Couple that with some personal stuff, including the fact that I'll need to have some minor surgery later this month. Don't worry, nothing serious, but pre-op appointments eat up time. And the fact that we discovered this month that our house is infested with termites, and, well, I appreciate your patience with the longer-than-typical wait. Everything in my home office is still also piled up in various corners after the guys came to inspect for termites, so hopefully it hasn't changed the acoustic makeup of the room too much, and the sound quality of this episode doesn't suffer. If it does, again, your understanding is appreciated. And just so that no one thinks I've dropped dead again at some point, let's talk about what the rest of this year holds for the podcast. We're on episode 19 this week and I think we'll probably get up to episode 25 before the show breaks at the start of December. Why break at the start of December? Well, turns out my wife and I are expecting again the first week of December. This will be our third, and if it's a boy, I promise I'm going to campaign pretty hard to name him Nicola. But don't hold your breath. Now, realistically, if a performance review and a sales meeting knocked me out of commission for a month, well couple of baby with the Christmas holidays, and I can pretty much guarantee that December will be a write-off. Which is kind of what happened last year over the holidays, actually, but without a baby involved. So, let's all agree that I'll bust my butt between now and then to do the show every other week, with episode 25 coming out on November 26th, or thereabouts, when we'll break until after the new year. My hope is that over the break, since I'll have some time away from work, that I can bank a few episodes before we start up again in January, so that if life gets in the way, and I'm sure it will with a newborn, you won't even have to notice. Deal? Deal. So, since it's been such a long wait since the last time, we'll skip over the usual and times part of the pod this time. The next episode also takes place in 1892, so we'll look at the noteworthy goings-on that year next time. Besides, even without that historical overview, this episode is pretty long. As we look at the state of competition in the AC industry as the turn of the century approached, as well as Tesla's triumphant return to Europe. 
But before we do get started, I just want to take a second to give a big thank you to all of those people who took a minute to like or leave a rating for the show since the last episode. So, from Facebook, we have Kevin Agnes, Caleb E. Johns, Heather Allen, Moises Gonzalez, Martin Stolpe Anderson, who also left a five-star review on Facebook saying, quote, Very good, very clear and professional podcast. Props for mentioning H.P. Lovecraft and Lego. Thanks, Martin. Gabrielle Vadisol, Alex Rubang, David Galvin, Charlie Navare, Jules Jew, Gretchen Leslie Cornwall, Cedric Huggins, Prydun Rajabi, Steve Mason, IJ Kumar, Alejandra Marscal, Sandra Jones, Rosa Lopez de Gomara, Luca Filipovic, and Kevin Leshman. And thanks too to David Galvin for his very kind note all the way from Ireland to say that listening to the podcast was helping keep him sane as he graded exams. Happy to be of service. Remember, if you'd like to leave a rating and review and get a shout out here, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave one there as it does help the discoverability of the show. Likewise, you can also join the Tesla The Life and Times podcast Facebook page and leave a rating and review there. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can also do that via the Facebook group, on Twitter at OurManCotto, or through email at tesla at Now then, where was I? In the months following the Columbia Lecture, Tesla certainly enjoyed a publicity about him and his work. After all, as O'Neill points out in his biography, Prodigal Genius, only five years earlier, Tesla had been hungry and penniless in the streets of New York, competing with equally hungry and penniless hordes of unemployed for ditch-digging jobs. And it was hard for Tesla to go unnoticed. Tall, dark, and handsome, with an air of European exoticism, 35 and unmarried, and widely believed to be rich after his deal with Westinghouse, Tesla cut an impressive figure through Manhattan. As someone once said, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Many daughters of marriageable age began to be introduced to Tesla in social situations, as Tesla's calendar began to fill up with invitations from the who's who of New York high society, the so-called 400 from the exclusive list assembled by Carolyn Astor and her cousin Ward McAllister, self-appointed arbiters of New York society. But Tesla was determined to remain unattached, as we've discussed before. Except at formal dinners, Tesla always dined by himself, and never under any circumstances would he dine alone with a woman. No matter how much he might be gushed over, Tesla adamantly maintained a polite but reserved attitude. At this point, Tesla began having specific tables at the Waldorf Astoria and at Delmonico's reserved for him. He favored tables that were in secluded spots in the dining room so that when he entered or exited, he wouldn't have to be goggled at by all the other diners. Despite his growing fame, Tesla didn't enjoy being on exhibit. Mostly, however, he tried to concentrate on his high-frequency experiments. He was especially keen to follow up on the demonstration in which gas-filled tubes glowed when placed between two electrified plates. Quote, when my tubes were first publicly exhibited, they were viewed with amazement impossible to describe, Tesla recalled. From all parts of the world, I received urgent invitations and numerous honors and other flattering inducements were offered to me, which I declined. To me, Tesla later wrote, it was the first evidence that I was conveying energy to a distance, and it was a tremendous spur to my imagination. 
Through the summer and fall of 1891, Tesla began scaling up his apparatus. On stage, he had transmitted power between two plates 15 feet apart. How much further could he push his wireless transmission of power, he wondered. To find out, Tesla substituted a large metal can for one plate and placed it on the roof of his Grand Street Laboratory. In place of the other plate, Tesla connected his oscillator to the building's water pipe system to ground it. He adjusted the induction coil and capacitor to create a maximum electrical current in the earth and potentially illuminate as many wireless lamps as possible. He tried a variety of lamps. Some glowed like those in the Columbia demonstration, with no need of wires, charged by the electric field set up between the earth and the can. Tesla also got good results connecting the lamps to a plate or into the ground. Remember that light bulbs in the ground image. It will pop up again a few years later when Tesla goes to Colorado Springs. These results gave Tesla hope that with the right light bulb, it would be possible to develop a wireless lighting system to compete with Edison's incandescent system. These experiments, with what we would understand today as electromagnetic waves, made Tesla think he could find a way to transmit electricity for light and power over a distance, and that he might be able to eliminate all wires used in electric lighting, telegraphy, and telephone systems. Remember, copper wire was usually the most expensive part of any electrical system, so to be able to do away with it entirely would be a massive savings and huge business advantage. This was where Tesla's obsession with wireless began. In fact, it was this series of experiments that Tesla would later point to in court testimony and various publications to argue for his primacy in the discovery of radio. He had definitely beaten Marconi to understanding the importance of grounding the transmitter and receiver. Marconi wouldn't come to that conclusion until 1895. And Tesla devised circuits at this time that were later used and modified by Marconi and other early radio researchers. But despite all this, we should note that the choices Tesla made were ones that would ultimately lead him away from what we would today think of as radio. Indeed, Tesla wasn't interested in creating a communication system. For him, wireless power, at least at first, was all about delivering light and power. And though Tesla knew he was generating waves that radiated through space, he was far more interested in the current passing through the ground and in having the Earth as part of his circuit. W. Bernard Carlson makes the point best. Quote, Rather than thinking about the history of radio as a race to a specific goal, we should realize that a new discovery, like the existence of electromagnetic waves, does not have to lead to a single new technology, like wireless telegraphy. Instead, what makes the history of a technology like radio interesting is that the same discovery can prompt different investigators to pursue different paths. We'll have much more to say about Marconi and about radio in future episodes. For now, though, let's take a quick detour to Germany, to Frankfurt specifically, and the International Electrical Exposition held in August 1891. It was there that two engineers, Charles Eugene Lancelot Brown and Michael von Dolovo Dobrowolski, successfully powered an illuminated sign that used 1,000 incandescent light bulbs, as well as the motor for the Expo's artificial waterfall by harnessing a real waterfall in Laufen, 112 miles away, and transmitting 190 horsepower of AC power all the way back to Frankfurt. Using oil as an insulator, as Tesla had explained in his Columbia College lecture, Brown was able to generate as much as 40,000 volts from the hydroelectric station at the waterfall. 
The transmission equipment utilized three-phase AC operating at 40 cycles per second, much closer to Tesla's 60-ish cycles than the 133 cycles per second the Westinghouse people kept insisting on. Brown sent only 25,000 volts along his wires, stepping the current down to usable levels when they reached the exposition. The efficiency of the transport was measured at 74.5%, astounding his colleagues. While Brown bluntly stated, quote, The three-phase current as applied at Frankfurt is due to the labors of Mr. Tesla and will be found clearly specified in his patents, Brown's partner Dobrowolski claimed that the whole setup was his idea, ignoring the primacy of Tesla's work and patents entirely. To differentiate his ideas from the existing single-phase and polyphase schemes of Tesla, Dobrowolski called his system Daystrom, which means rotary current in Germany. And Tesla's patent situation in Europe was far from clear. Tesla had filed patent applications for the AC motor in several countries, including Germany and England, but he had issued no licenses to European manufacturers, nor enforced his patents by taking legal action against infringers. There's a famous quote you see floating around the internet and on various Facebook pages that is attributed to Tesla. Quote, I don't care that they stole my idea. I care that they don't have any of their own. Now, I haven't been able to source this quote to a specific source other than the internet, so I'm inclined to wonder whether Tesla even ever said it. He did say something close in The True Wireless, an article he penned for the May 1919 issue of The Electrical Experimenter magazine, when he spoke of those who had appropriated his inventions for their own use. Quote, I cannot help thinking how much better it would have been if the ingenious men who have originated these systems had invented something of their own instead of depending on me altogether. As we'll see, there is every reason to think that Tesla did very much mind that people had stolen his ideas and not given him credit. And the proof begins on December 16, 1891, when an electrical engineer named Michael Pupin delivered a talk before the AIEE on polyphase systems. Puppin is an interesting parallel to Tesla's own life and career in electricity. Puppin was also Serbian, and also taken with electricity from a young age. His father had been a knez, or village leader, much like Tesla's father. But unlike Milutin Tesla, the elder Puppin was an illiterate peasant and not part of the clerical aristocracy. Many of Puppin's relatives, like Tesla's, were war heroes who had fought the Turks. Like Tesla, Puppin had also avoided military service. Puppin emigrated to the United States in 1874 and entered Columbia College in New York in 1878 and then went on scholarship to the University of Berlin where he received a doctorate in physics. In 1889, he returned to New York to become an instructor at Columbia College and befriended Elihu Thompson. Given that Thompson was an ongoing thorn in Tesla's side, it was this friendship that Tesla blamed for the souring of the relationship between he, Tesla, and Puppin. And so, with Arthur Kennelly, Elihu Thompson, Charles Bradley, and Charles Steinmetz present, Puppin referred the AIEE to the, quote, beautiful inventions of Nikola Tesla and the completeness of the success which Dobrowolski and Brown obtained by the practical applications of these inventions. His lecture was galling for a couple of reasons. First, I think it shows that because the Westinghouse team had ignored Tesla's advice about running the system in the 60 cycles per second range, 
and stuck obstinately to their 133 cycles per second standard, their failure to make practical Tesla's system led Tesla's contributions to the field to not be given the full credit they deserve for their revolutionary nature. Second, Huppen implied in his lecture that aspects of how the Germans ran their system had been independently discovered instead of relying wholly upon Tesla's work and patents. Tesla, who had not attended the lecture, wrote Puppin a terse note a few days later. Get hold of the patent applications by the German team, it said in essence, and you'll find that they're just a copy of my work. Puppin's reply was equally unfriendly. I don't think you ought to find fault with me for not having given your inventions a fuller discussion. I know of your motors only by hearsay. I've not had the pleasure of being shown one by anybody. I looked you up twice at your hotel and wrote you once, but all my efforts were in vain. The dispute about primacy of invention in AC technology wasn't about to stop there. Dobrowolski's false claim was bolstered by his friend and mentor, Karl Herring, a professor of engineering at the university in Darmstadt, Germany, who wrote a prodigious number of articles about his former student's achievement and apparatus in various electrical journals all throughout 1891. This is the repeat-a-lie-often-enough-loudly-enough-and-people-will-believe-it's-the-truth school of public relations. This narrative found supporters on both sides of the Atlantic, as those in the engineering community who were locked out of the Tesla patents could point to the Laufen-Frankfurt experiment and suggest that Tesla's work had nothing to do with it. Ironically, the Westinghouse team didn't step up to defend Tesla's work or his system at this point, because it both proved Tesla was right and they wrong about these cycles per second, and the transmission of so much power over such a distance, 112 miles or just over 180 kilometers, dwarfed their own recent success at Telluride, which we mentioned last episode, where power was sent a mere 2.6 miles or just over 4 kilometers. As Mark Seifer points out, when looking through Westinghouse documents, one is hard-pressed to find any mention of Laufen Frankfurt at all. With Dobrowolski's claims and Herring's biased reporting as their cover, a faction of the American electrical establishment rejected Tesla's claims of primacy in the invention of the polyphase AC motor. It was the faction that stood to benefit economically from being able to ignore the Westinghouse monopoly on the Tesla system, and included Arthur Kennelly, Elihu Thompson, and Charles Bradley. Even Charles Steinmetz, an electrical genius in his own right, it was Steinmetz who figured out the mathematics involved in hysteresis, which showed the behavior of magnetism in materials, and is thus incredibly important to the design of motors, generators, and other electrical devices. Even Steinmetz, who started as a staunch defender of Tesla's primacy in AC motors, eventually turned on him. Once the company Steinmetz worked for was acquired by the newly formed General Electric, we'll talk about the founding of GE in an upcoming episode, Steinmetz opted to bolster his own standing in the corporate community at Tesla's expense. In Steinmetz's 1897 work, Theory and Calculations of Alternating Current Phenomena, co-authored with Ernst Julius Berg, Steinmetz omitted any reference to Tesla at all. By the turn of the century, Steinmetz had also pushed Berg, his co-author, off the project entirely, and Berg's name disappeared from the book's cover. As this work, along with Steinmetz's second book, Theoretical Elements of Electrical Engineering, written in 1902, served as important sources and templates for later writers and textbooks, it became possible for later generations of engineers to study AC, complete their degrees, 
and even write textbooks of their own, and never come across Tesla's name. It was to GE's benefit to pretend that Tesla never existed, and it was to Westinghouse's benefit to pretend that the Laufen Frankfurt transmission had never occurred. And this obfuscation, this official forgetting for corporate purposes, is in no small part why Tesla's name largely vanished in later decades. But, back in 1891, Sir William Crookes, the president of the Institution of Electrical Engineers in England, had invited Tesla to lecture in London, and Tesla had also received an invitation to speak in Paris before the Société de Physique and the Société Internationale des Électriciens. Worried that he would not be recognized as the inventor of polyphase AC, and anxious to solidify his patent position in Europe, Tesla decided to accept these invitations and forward his foreign interests. Given that Westinghouse was no longer paying him any royalties, Tesla also planned to take advantage of the trip to secure licensing agreements with European electrical companies to manufacture his motor and generate some income for himself. After Paris, Tesla planned to visit his family in Croatia and Serbia. He was especially anxious to see his mother. As he recalled in his autobiography, he missed her terribly, but had found it too hard to break away from the laboratory in order to travel home and see her. Now, however, quote, a consuming desire to see her again gradually took possession of me. This feeling grew so strong that I resolved to drop all work and satisfy my longing. Tesla set sail from New York January 16, 1892, and arrived in England ten days later. He was invited to stay at the London home of Sir William Preece, a distinguished electrician of the old guard and head of the telegraph department of the British post office. Preece put a horse and carriage at Tesla's disposal. Tesla's plan was to speak before the Institution of Electrical Engineers a week later, quote, and leave immediately for Paris to lecture before the Société Française des Électriciens. However, he still planned to make the most of his time in London. Ever savvy with the media and determined to, quote, change the attitude of scientific men and engineers very considerably, both as regards the utilization of rotary current motors and as to the credit which should be given to this most interesting discovery, Tesla met almost immediately with a reporter from the London publication Electrical Engineer. Within three days of Tesla's arrival, a profile of him ran in the journal detailing his pioneering work on AC motors, with specific mention of how it preceded the work of Ferraris and Dobrowolski. After a few days of preparation, and let's face it, probably some sightseeing in Victorian London, on Wednesday, February 3rd, 1892, Tesla unveiled his new lecture, Experiments with Alternating Currents of High Potential and High Frequency Before the Institution of Electrical Engineers, the IEE. Anticipating a large turnout, tales of Tesla's dramatic displays had preceded him to Europe, the IEE decided to move the lecture from their normal venue, with a seating capacity of 400, to the Royal Institution, which sat 800. In return for this favor, the managers of the Royal Institution asked that Tesla repeat his lecture the following night for its members. Now, Tesla rarely liked to give the same presentation twice, so he was a hard sell on this idea. James Dewar, the Fullerian Professor of Chemistry at the Royal Institution, was the one who eventually convinced Tesla to do the repeat performance. I was a man of firm resolve, but succumbed easily to the forceful arguments of the great Scotchman, recalled Tesla. 
He pushed me into a chair and poured out half a glass of a wonderful brown fluid which sparkled in all sorts of iridescent colors and tasted like nectar. Now, he said, you are sitting in Faraday's chair and you're enjoying whiskey he used to drink. After that, Tesla could hardly say no, now could he? It would also not have been lost on Tesla that by giving the talk at the Royal Institution, he would be lecturing on the same stage where, in the 1830s, Faraday, his great hero, had introduced the fundamental principles of electromagnetic induction. The lecture hall itself was an amphitheater, with the seats rising steeply in front of the stage. Such lectures were always formal affairs, so men wore evening dress, think black tie and tails, and a number of ladies were also in attendance, a rarity in those days at such events, which tended to have more of a boys' club feeling to them. Traditionally, the lectures were expected to last one hour, with no lengthy introductions. But that all went out the window pretty quick. Any feature of merit which this work may contain, Tesla began, was derived from the work of a number of scientists who are present today, not a few who can lay better claim than myself. Indeed, in the audience, and many of them in the front row, were major names in the field, including J.J. Thompson, Oliver Heaviside, Sylvanus P. Thompson, Joseph Swan, Sir John Ambrose Fleming, Sir James Dewar, Sir William Priest, Sir Oliver Lodge, Sir William Crookes, and Lord Kelvin. You know, the one who the temperature scale is named after? Yeah, him. Tesla went on to praise Sir William Crookes, the president of the IEE, who had invited him in the first place, and he spoke at length of the man's own accomplishments in electrical research, even recalling a paper that he, Tesla, had read in school in which Crookes described his early experiments with radiant matter, and Tesla explained how those experiments had made a deep impression on him. I believe that the origin of my advances was that fascinating little book on radiant energy, which I read many years ago, Tesla said. Then he got down to business. Firing up his oscillating transformer, he spoke over the buzz and snap of writhing fingers of electric flame. With wonder and delight, we note the effects of strange forces which we bring into play, which allow us to transform, to transmit, and direct energy at will. We see the mass of iron and wires behave as though endowed with life. Immediately there burst forth all around Tesla, quote, magnificent colors of phosphorescent light, from what we would today think of as neon signs. In honor of Lord Kelvin, sitting down there in the front, one of Tesla's neon signs had been made to spell out Lord Kelvin's actual name, William Thompson. Tesla, ever the showman, was also a bit of a suck-up. I'll include a drawing of this lamp in this week's show notes on the show's website, www.teslapodcast.com. Next, a real crowd-pleaser. The vacuum tube in Tesla's hand, quote, glowed with a brilliant lambent flame from end to end, and recalled to everyone the idea of the magician's enchanted wand, quoted one observer. One curmudgeon, writing for the British journal Engineering, complained that it was, quote, a breach of the dramatic canons to start with an experiment of such brilliancy, and then to descend to others of less importance. Tesla's audience, however, broke into applause. One viewer mused that in the future, lighting of this kind might render, quote, the whole mass of the air in the room softly and beautifully phosphorescent. Welcome to the fluorescent light bulb. Standing on an insulated platform, Tesla used his body as part of a circuit, contacting one terminal of his oscillating transformer 
and making tongues of electricity arc from the other. Turning to the audience, Tesla asked, Is there, I ask, can there be, a more interesting study than that of alternating current? For two hours, twice the length of a normal lecture at the IEE, Tesla, quote, showed wonder after wonder, the interest of the audience deepening into enthusiasm, reported a commenter in Nature. Captivated, the audience ignored his broken English, and imperfect explanations did not detract from his success. His marvelous skill as an experimentalist was evident and unmistakable. Tesla used his coil to perform further wonders. Six-inch sparks jumped between brass spheres. Two long wires, a foot apart and stretched across the well of the theater, glowed blue along their entire length. And between two wire circles, he created, quote, a palpating purple disc of great beauty. And once again, Tesla was ahead of his time. He debuted what were, in essence, the first vacuum tubes, 15 years ahead of those made by Lee DeForest and Sir John Fleming, who was sitting there in the front row, remember? Those two men used them to detect and amplify weak radio signals. Tesla described how, when powered by his high-frequency coil, a glowing discharge, called the brush, danced between the electrode and the inside wall of the bulb. Today, we understand the brush to be a stream of electrons, which, of course, Tesla didn't believe even existed. He noted that the brush could be manipulated by a magnet, and that it rotated in a clockwise direction as a result of the Earth's magnetic field. Tesla himself speculated that this phenomenon might, quote, find practical applications in telegraphy, With such a brush, it would be possible to send dispatches across the Atlantic, for instance, with any speed, since its sensitiveness may be so great that the slightest changes will affect it. Despite this, however, Tesla was still a long way away from the practical radio tubes of DeForest and Fleming, who discovered that a lot more was necessary to manipulate and control the electron stream inside the tube and get the tubes to be anything but a novelty or curiosity, like the ones Tesla had. This is one of Tesla's great flaws, I think, one that I feel he shares with a great mind like Leonardo da Vinci. He's always on to something new before he fully explores the latest thing he's discovered. Many times, Tesla either missed promising avenues of research, and ultimately profits to fund more research, by lacking a kind of focus and discipline to fully understand what exactly he'd discovered. As a result, his own grasp of some of the principles underlying his inventions was sketchy. As one critic, A.P. Trotter, editor of The Electrician, rightly points out about that night in front of the IEE, quote, Tesla did not write and read a paper, nor did he give a lecture, and he was so occupied in waving long glowing electrodeless tubes in the air and lighting up of ordinary incandescent lamps by a current taken through his body that he had no time to explain how it was done, nor, I think, could he. While many were impressed by Tesla in the moment, As time wore on, he began to gain a reputation for lacking in the fundamentals of experimental science, of fully trying to understand what was happening and why, before he would press on to the next thing. It is another reason that, even within Tesla's own lifetime, his reputation began to falter and be downplayed amongst his peers. Indeed, after leaving this speculation about his vacuum tubes just hanging there, Tesla moved on to what he really was interested in that night the idea that his disk motor could be operated with only a single wire connected to the transformer and another connected to a suspended plate. He also speculated that his motor could be configured in such a way as to run without any wires, simply drawing power from the atmosphere 
charged with electricity. For his finale, Tesla introduced yet another new kind of tube, which, like his hero Crook's own radiometer, contained a tiny fan with mica blades. However, while the fan and a radiometer turns as a result of light hitting the blades, Tesla made his fan turn when placed in the electrostatic field between the charged suspended plates. The fan, connected to nothing and drawing power from the ambient electrostatic charge between the plates, bowled the audience over. The scientists, recalled Tesla, simply did not know where they were when they saw it. One additional piece of equipment that Tesla demonstrated that night bears mentioning, if only because of the dramatic claims made about it by Mark Seifer in his Tesla biography, Wizard. The device in question is what Tesla called his button lamp, which consisted of a tiny button of high-resistance material such as carbon or carborundum, a.k.a. silicon carbide, that was rendered incandescent when powered by a high-frequency current. Now, Seifer claims that with this device, Tesla could, quote, vaporize matter, including zirconia and diamonds, and had, in fact, invented lasers. Back in the 60s, I developed a weather-changing machine, which was, in essence, a sophisticated heat beam, which we called a laser. Two kinds, in fact, a ruby laser and a gas laser, powered by either helium or neon. This is, needless to say, a startling claim, and one which Seifer goes on about at some length, several full pages in his book. His argument is that Tesla, in the setup of his button lamp, had accidentally stumbled upon the configuration required to create laser beams, and he claims that, quote, most likely Tesla displayed actual laser beams at this time. His evidence is Tesla's explanation of an experiment in which one of his coils would not just melt thick tinfoil, but would evaporate it, quote, and the whole process took place in so small an interval of time that it was like a cannon shot. That was a striking experiment. Seifer does, at least, concede that, quote, neither Tesla nor the other scientists present at the time recognized the unique importance of the directed ray, as it was part of a combination of other lighting effects which resulted in the disintegration of the material that was being bombarded. And while the Tesla fanboy part of me wants to believe that old Nikola beat Bell Labs to the laser by a full 50 years, well, I have a hard time buying this one. Not least of all because W. Bernard Carlson, in his book, relates the same event and the same device and says that witnesses rated the power from the button lamp at a mere 5 candle power, which is really not much power at all. Certainly far less than even the simplest of today's laser pointers would generate. Candle power measures the concentration or intensity of a beam of light emanating from a particular source in a particular direction. Now, every light source produces a cone-shaped light. The narrower the cone is, the more concentrated the light beam, and so the higher the candle power. A laser beam, which is focused linear light, has very high candle power and a very narrow cone, but it would register a relatively low lumen measurement, or total light produced, which is why most lasers are invisible to the naked eye. Also, don't shine a laser in your naked eye. Bad idea. Anyway, all of this to say that that description just doesn't match up with what Seifer's talking about. In any case, I think the biggest red flag is from Seifer's own text, where he says, quote, It was part of a combination of other lighting effects which resulted in the disintegration of the material that was being bombarded. Now, basic scientific method is to control for all variables, 
and make sure that your experiment is able to be replicated. If, by Seifer's own admission, there were a variety of factors involved in this mysterious disintegrating foil, then we aren't really able to say confidently that it was an accidental laser, and an accidental laser alone that was responsible. I also have a hard time believing you could just accidentally build a laser. I mean, that just seems far-fetched to me. The whole idea reminds me of that episode of Star Trek where Captain Kirk fights the Gorn, and Kirk is able, as he's on the run from a giant lizard man, by the way, to gather all of the ingredients necessary to make gunpowder, and then using a bamboo tube and some diamonds he happens to find lying around as ammunition, he's able to fashion a cannon to help defeat his enemy. The episode is called Arena, by the way, if you want to check it out for yourself, Season 1, Episode 18 of the original series. It's preposterous, of course, but it's an awful lot of fun. In any case, as always, I leave it to you to decide what you think based on the evidence available. Although I'm first to admit that the idea of Tesla running around London with a laser gun is super cool to imagine. It has been my chief aim in presenting these results to point out phenomena or features of novelty, Tesla said by way of conclusion, and to advance ideas which I am hopeful will serve as starting points of new departures. It has been my chief desire this evening to entertain you with some novel experiments. Your applause, so frequently and generously accorded, has told me that I have succeeded. At the end of the lecture, quote, Mr. Tesla tantalizingly informed his listeners that he had shown them but one-third of what he was prepared to do, and the whole audience remained in their seats, unwilling to disperse, insisting upon more. It may be stated, as Mr. Tesla mentioned, but which hardly seems to be realized, that practically the whole of the experiments shown were new, and had never been shown before, and were not merely a repetition of those given in America. Having seen the inventor handle such enormous voltages, quote, so unconcernedly, many of the attendees wondered how Tesla dared to take current through his body. It was the result of a long debate in my mind, Tesla replied, but through calculation and reason I concluded that such currents ought not to be dangerous to life any more than the vibrations of light are dangerous. Consider a thin diaphragm in a water pipe with to and fro piston strikes of considerable amplitude. The diaphragm will be ruptured at once the inventor explained. With reduced strokes the same total energy, the diaphragm will be less liable to rupture, until, with a vibratory impulse of many thousands per second, no actual current flows, and the diaphragm is in no danger of rupture. So with the vibratory current. In other words, Tesla had increased the frequency, or alterations per second, but reduced the amplitude or power greatly. Tesla fired up his coil one more time, sending tens of thousands of volts through or around his body, and illuminating two fluorescent tubes which he held in each hand. As you can see, he added, I am very much alive. That we can see, one audience member responded, but is there no pain? A spark, or course, passes through my hands, and may puncture the skin, and sometimes I receive an occasional burn, but that's all. And even this can be avoided if I hold a conductor of suitable size in my hand and then take control of the current. Tesla may be nonchalant about this, but there's a PBS documentary about Tesla available on Netflix right now. At least it's on Netflix Canada, your mileage may vary. It's a recent documentary in which a scientist recounts doing the very same thing that Tesla did here, taking all that energy through his body. While it is safe if done properly, the scientist ensures the audience that doing so hurts like hell. 
So Tesla may once again have been shining his audience on a bit to enhance both his own reputation and that of AC current generally. As I mentioned, these lectures tended to be pretty reserved affairs, very British and stiff upper lip and all that. However, at the conclusion of the second performance at the Royal Institution, Lord Rayleigh, a prominent British physicist, insisted on giving a vote of thanks to Tesla. Clearly, Tesla had made an impression. Mr. Tesla has not worked blindly or at random, Rayleigh said, but has been guided by the proper use of a scientific imagination. Without the use of such a guide, we can scarcely hope to do anything of real service. Mr. Tesla has the genius of a discoverer, and we may look forward to a long career of discovery for him. Tesla took Rayleigh's remarks as a great compliment and source of inspiration. Quote, Up to that time, Tesla said, I've never realized I possessed any particular gift of discovery, but Lord Rayleigh, whom I always considered as an ideal man of science, had said so. Tesla's recollection, however, was also a bit more specific. He said that I possessed a particular gift of discovery and that I should concentrate upon one big idea. In the weeks that followed, Tesla continued to be a sensation in London. The press, quote, was full of thrilling accounts of this wizard who defied scientific explanation. Anxious to know more about the man behind the magic, Trotter and several engineers organized an informal dinner for Tesla. We were all young and eager to know more of Tesla's attractive personality, Trotter recalled. Over dinner, Tesla delighted his British hosts with humorous stories about life in America. One British engineer, J.A. Fleming, was inspired by Tesla's lecture to photograph the sparks produced by an induction coil in order to determine whether the sparks indeed oscillate. Fleming invited Tesla to view the resulting photographs and congratulated him on his lectures. Calling the performances a grand success, Fleming told Tesla, quote, that no one can doubt your qualifications as a magician of the first order, and he dubbed Tesla a member of the new and fictitious Order of the Flaming Sword. Fleming will figure again later in our story when, in 1901, he will design the transmitter that Marconi uses for his transatlantic wireless tests. At Sir William Cook's lab, Tesla constructed a coil as a gift and taught Crookes how to build Tesla coils of his own. But Crookes later complained, quote, The phosphorescence through my body when I hold one terminal is decidedly inferior to that given with the little one that you made for me. During breaks in their experiments, the two discussed a number of pie-in-the-sky big ideas, including how electricity could be utilized to purify water and treat sewage and industrial waste, how to electrify gardens to stimulate growth and make crops unappealing to destructive insects, how to set up secure secret communication between wireless operators by use of specific wavelengths, and whether science might be able to alter weather patterns, mainly to improve the rainy weather in England. Crookes also introduced Tesla to his interest in the occult and psychic phenomenon. Having read widely in spiritualism, demonology, witchcraft, animal magnetism, spiritual theology, magic, and medical psychology, Crookes had investigated seances and come to believe that there was some basis for the claims made by mediums of being able to contact the dead. Up to this time, Tesla had given little thought to such matters, but he was deeply impressed that a man of science, such as Crookes, took spiritualism so seriously. These discussions would factor into Tesla's trip to the continent and his mother's death, as we'll see in the next episode. The obvious pressure Tesla was under caused William Crookes to offer some friendly advice in a letter. I hope you will get away to the mountains of your native land as soon as you can. 
You are suffering from overwork, and if you don't take care of yourself, you will break down. Don't answer this letter or see anyone, but take the first train. Tesla wanted to take his advice, but he had to address the Paris Society first. Next time, we'll see that Crooks's concern for Tesla's health was justified as overwork and tragic news from home finally catches up with our inventor. I fled from London and later from Paris, said Tesla in his autobiography, to escape favors showered upon me and journeyed to my home where I passed through a most painful ordeal and illness. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. As always, please spread the word. Recommend the show to a friend, or share links to the latest episodes via your social media. It really does help. Please take just a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to the show, and leave a rating and review like the ones I mentioned at the top. Past episodes can be found at www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list, you can keep up to date about our show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManKato. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.